Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's the president and founder of Good Fight Ministries, Pastor Joe Schimmel. Dr. Procurelli, it's such a joy and a pleasure to have you on with us, and we really appreciate your time and blessing uh, our audience and blessing us as well. I've I've read you through the years, as you know, I've got you've got I've got different favorite authors on different issues, and on this issue, you're definitely one of my favorites by far. I think you have a lot to offer, and I just really hope our audience goes and uh, grabs these grabs any of these books that might you know encourage you guys. I have this quote from page 104 of Grace, Faith, Free Will, and I'd love for you to explain to people what you're trying to say, because I think maybe somebody will be shocked by the first sentence, but I think if you bring it out to them so they better understand it, I think it'd be great. You said, you do not believe that God intended by the atonement to save all people. Had God designed the atonement with that intention, all would be saved. What God intends to do, he does. His final purposes are never thwarted. Had God sent his son with the purpose that by his death all men would be saved without actually saving all, he would have been thwarted and in error as to the facts. So are are you a Calvinist with that statement? What's going on there, Dr. Piccarelli? (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, I appreciate you pointing that out. And let me start by saying that I really do believe with all my heart that one of the biggest problems for Calvinism, and by that I mean a thoroughgoing five-point Calvinism, as I I gather you understand very well, Mm -hmm. um, one of the biggest problems is the matter of whether the atonement was for all or whether it was only for the the chosen few, the elect. Um, So one of the things that some Calvinists do to us Arminians who believe in a general or a universal atonement is to say, well, uh, you're wrong to say that God designed the atonement to save everybody, because if he had designed it to save everybody, everybody would be saved. Um, And of course, uh, that's right. Um, So the question becomes then, what was his purpose? What was his intention? Did he design the atonement with the intention of saving everybody? Um, in other words, was his purpose in the atonement to save everybody? Um, his purpose in the atonement, I would say, was to provide everybody with the opportunity Amen. for salvation. Amen. Uh, but not necessarily to save everybody, uh, because, of course, the Bible is not Uh, a document that teaches universal salvation. It very clearly makes uh, uh, the case that some are saved and some are lost. And um, indeed, if there is a difference in how many, it may very well be that the greater part are lost as compared to the number that are saved. But be that as it may, the point is that there are both the saved and the lost. So if God had intended, if he had meant for the atonement, if the purpose of the atonement was to save everybody, if Jesus died with the uh, intention of saving everyone, then I 
I would say everyone would, would be saved. But he died instead with the intention to, to provide the atonement for everyone. Um, even some Calvinists like, uh, like uh, Shedd, for example, are very much aware that the atonement in and of itself doesn't save a person. The atonement provides the grounds for salvation, but it has to be applied yes. uh, in order to, for a person to be saved. And that application of the atonement to the individual in a saving way comes as a result of the individual's submission to God, the individual's choice of faith, uh, since salvation is by faith. So um, that would be my way of responding to what you've read there, and I, I, I hope that's adequate, but I'll be glad to expand further if you have a further question about it. No, we appreciate the uh, grace, and uh, I think a great illustration of that is the Passover lambs, right? In, in the, they were slain. If you took a Passover lamb and you'd slain it, which was a picture of the ultimate Passover lamb, the antitype, uh, Jesus, and you and you refused to apply that blood to your doorpost, uh, the death angel would take your firstborn. So you had to apply that blood, and we have to apply the blood of Christ through faith and put our trust in Jesus. So I really appreciate what you mentioned because there is a uh, Dr. James White and other Calvinists will constantly say, well, then God failed if he did, if Jesus died for everybody, for everybody's not saved. But it's important, as you point out, that, hey, we don't say that Jesus died uh, expecting everybody to come to him and be saved, but as a provision. I have a question that relates to your book, uh, Free Will Revisited. Uh, would it re- in regard to, for instance, uh, you know, we agree with you that we are bound by sin and that uh, we would not just, you know, people don't, a lot of Arminians, since Wiley and Miley and many other uh, Arminian theologians, uh, some of these theologians emphasized, uh, they got away from uh, what we believe the scriptures teach in that the will is bound, that we're le- if left to ourselves, you know, we'd all choose sin. But uh, what is why, what is the need for prevenient grace? Why does man need prevenient grace? And maybe you could give a couple scriptures that you believe clearly teach uh, prevenient grace and the beauty of it. Well, um, yeah, I appreciate your saying what you said as a part of the uh, leading up into the question. Um Yes, there are many Arminians who seem to think that human beings, even though we are fallen and uh, are sinful, uh, we still have the ability to uh, turn to God on our own without, uh, without divine grace. And I, I don't believe that. Um, I, I think there are many scripture passages that make it clear that that's not the case, such as... Uh, when John says, when Jesus says in John, no one can come to the Father uh, unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless yeah. the Father Amen. who sent sent me draws him. So there has to be a, a work of God to enable that. The scriptures say, such as Paul mentions in Corinthians, that um, the natural man does not receive, and the word that's translated receive there is the idea of welcoming it, Um, accepting it uh, uh, for himself. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. So um, uh, we are presented in Scripture as being spiritually dead, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. We're dead in trespasses and sins, 
And as our Calvinist friends remind us, a person who's dead uh, obviously can't seek God or turn to God uh, if he's spiritually dead. Um, the scriptures represent us as being blinded and, in a sense, being blinded by Satan. Uh, so there are many, many passages that make it clear that uh, once the fall took place, the human race is uh, depraved. I don't even object to the phrase total depravity. Uh, I think of it as disabling depravity. It has disabled us in any kind of natural ability we might have to turn to God. So that I often say, you know, if if there was nothing done for human beings except simply preaching the gospel to them, and it was left at that, or they were given the offer of salvation. No human being would ever accept that offer. Uh, we love our sins too much uh, to uh, to want to turn to God on our own. So there has to be uh, what we call prevenient grace. Uh, and I see it in that drawing that I mentioned a moment ago in uh, John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I see it also in what's said when uh, when Paul is uh, encountering Lydia, and it says, her heart the Lord opened, her heart, and uh, various other things along that line. Uh, so I take that the, the main content of prevenient grace, now there may be other elements as well, but without these two key elements, there would be no prevenient grace. That is, the, the proclamation of the word and then the work of the Holy Spirit to give understanding, uh, to do conviction. Uh, conviction is just a fancy word for convincing. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's a persuasive word, and it's an inviting kind of work that the Holy Spirit does. And uh, the, the proclamation of the word, Romans, as you know, Romans 10 says they, they, they're not going to believe unless they hear uh, hearing comes by, I mean, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word. And if that Word is then uh, brought to the heart and mind and spirit of an individual by the work of the Holy Spirit, then that individual is able to see what, even though blind, he could not otherwise see. He is able to uh, believe, to trust, to accept the gospel. Not that he's doing a work that has any merit to it, because he couldn't even do that if the Holy Spirit didn't convict him of the <laughs> Word of God and of its truth. But once that, once that prevenient grace that I prefer to call it enabling grace, hmm. it Amen. is a gracious work by which the Spirit of God enables the, the depraved, um, hell-bound, blind, dead sinner to uh, be able to see the truth of what it is, see what God has done for him, and thus uh, to then either accept or still, if he chooses, to reject that uh, that God is offering him by grace. <clears throat> Amen. Uh, that leads us to another question that I wanted to ask you. Uh, our Calvinistic uh, brothers and sisters emphasize that, well, since we are depraved and we don't know and seeks the Lord on their own and uh, so forth, that in order to actually choose to place faith in Christ, 
one must for, first be born again. And they seem to get the, you know, the, the, the cart before the horse there, because throughout scripture, we see the agency of regeneration is the, as the work of the spirit is the word of God and that we're regenerated through faith. Uh, and one of the things I thought you did a great job in, in, in your book, Grace, Faith, and Free Will, uh, is uh, showing the order, is, is emphasizing that repentance and faith precede regeneration. Could you speak to that issue a little bit, Dr. Prickerelli? Well, um, yeah, I think this question of the order of events, the order of elements, I guess maybe might be a better word than events, in, in the work of salvation, um, is a point of disagreement between the Calvinists and the Arminians. The Calvinists say it starts with regeneration because since the sinner is, uh, is depraved and dead, that God has to regenerate him even before he can come to faith. Um, but um, the scriptures make faith uh, prior to regeneration, I think, um, and um, we're 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 given the idea that that the word of God, according to the Calvinists, the word of God isn't even involved in regeneration. Uh, you're regenerated first, and then the word of God can mean something to you, and it can affect you, and you can exercise faith. <clears throat> but um, the scriptures, uh, I think, are pretty clear in making. Uh, the word essential even to being born again, um, and faith is essential even to being born again. For example, in um, in the book of Galatians, uh, Paul makes it clear that we receive the Holy Spirit by faith. Amen. That's not a matter of just merely of being justified. That's a matter of receiving the Holy Spirit, and receiving the Holy Spirit is another way of referring to regeneration, because when we receive the Spirit, it's the Spirit that brings us into spiritual life, which is a matter of, of uh, being regenerated. And um, so I think, uh, I think it's very clear in the Scripture that, uh, that uh, faith and the Word are required for a person to be alive spiritually, to be born again. Amen. Amen. Amen to that. And, you know, we have been discussing here with Dr. Robert Piccarilli on not only grace, faith, and free will, but also free will revisited. And in free will revisited, what Dr. Piccarilli does is goes through the argumentation put forth by Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Jonathan Edwards, three of maybe the four horsemen, right, of the, uh, I don't want to call it that, but but nonetheless, three of the main, you know, big dogs when it comes to Calvinistic theology or Lutheran uh, theology, and then obviously, obviously Jonathan Edwards here in America. And one of the things you you bring out from them, and, and I do think a lot of this, a lot of it has to do with a misunderstanding of terms. You know, when you say sovereignty, I think you might mean something different. And one of the things you bring out is foreknowledge. And two of those authors specifically deal with foreknowledge, where Calvin does not. In the book, you mention that foreknowledge does not equal foreordination. Could you maybe explain that to our listeners here? Well, yes, uh, although it's the kind of thing that could take hours to uh, <laughs> talk about in great detail, but uh, let me at least uh, give it a sort of a, a sum up. Um, one of the things the uh, the Calvinists 
try to do is say that um, uh, foreknowledge uh, involves predestination or foreordination, uh, that God has already determined how things are going to be, and that's the way he knows how things are going to be. Uh, so that uh, then uh, that, that, uh, that knowing is associated, it's tied in with having already determined or caused it to be the way it's going to be. Um, knowledge itself, however, uh, even foreknowledge, even knowledge in advance, uh, does not have anything to do with how an event takes place, um, whether it takes place by cause and effect or whether it takes place by a free uh, self-determined decision. Um, I think one way to help people see that is to think about our knowledge of something in the past. Uh, I know, for example, that um, uh, Joe Biden was elected president and is now in the office. Uh, well, my knowledge of that has nothing to do with what brought it about. Um, and the same thing is true for God knowing the future. He knows the future even when that future is uh, decided by the individual who could decide among various options, who might decide in more than one way. Um, yeah, that's, that's a sort of a quick summary, but uh, feel free to, to uh, draw me out on any particular aspects of that that you'd like to uh, develop further. Yeah, one of the things I appreciated about uh, Free Will Revisited is is how you articulate Calvin and, and, of course, Luther and Jonathan Edwards' views and how they're very similar. They're all, and as you mentioned, you know, at the end of the book, in the bottom line section, you talk about how uh, Luther's view was pretty much the same as Calvin's and uh, Jonathan Edwards with, with some differences, you know. I think you point out that, you know, Luther tried to stick more with the Scripture where Edwards tried to get more philosophical and so forth. But uh, let's deal with compatibilism. The, the idea that, uh, you know, from Jonathan Edwards and many Calvinists today who realize the Scriptures do speak and even they even use the term free will offerings and 1 Corinthians 10, 13 deals with options between, you know, let no one say he's tempted, he's tempted of God and James, but in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that there's diff different options that God's God gives us a way of escape that we can endure temptation showing that there's different options and the Calvinist realizes, wow, I'm in a bad position here. I'm teaching that everything's determined. I have to fit free will into it. So then they come up with the idea of compatibilism, that free will is compatible with determinism where everything's scripted. You can't do anything other than what God scripted, but somehow you're still free and how that really doesn't work, not only scripturally, but it doesn't even work logically. You can get into that a bit. Well, um, basically the the long-standing philosophical and theological arguments that have been around forever uh, deal with whether things in this world are all predetermined by the uh, will and actions of God or whether there is human freedom or not. And most everybody had uh, always agreed that uh, God being the determiner of all things, can't you can't make that match. Uh, humans being free to choose for themselves to decide either to uh, submit to God or reject him, or for that matter, lots of other things in life. 
Um, but then uh, the idea came along, which is called compatibilism, and it started in philosophy and, and then was adopted into theology, that um, you can reconcile uh, determinism an absolute determinism with uh, with uh, freedom. In order to do that, what you have to do, however, is change the meaning of the word freedom. Uh, you still got determinism, uh, but you changed the meaning of the word freedom. Uh, basically, in the history of discussion, the word freedom means what we now call a libertarian freedom. That is, simply put, the ability to choose more than one way. Uh, so the compatibilists redefine freedom to make it mean something else. They say that the individual is free, yes, but he's free only to choose the way he chooses. He's sure. not free to choose the alternative. Um, and the reason they call that freedom is because they say, well, he's voluntarily doing it. So it's free for him to do that, but he's just not free to do anything else. Well, in my book, that's not freedom. At least it's not what freedom meant in the discussion. So the, um, the real point is that even though the compatibilists have changed the meaning of the word freedom in order to say you can, uh, you can make it compatible with uh, determinism, uh, it's still true that determinism is not compatible with libertarian freedom. So now we have to add another adjective to the word freedom in order to distinguish it from that that adjustment that the compatibilists made to the word freedom. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And maybe to throw a little bit, add a little bit of light to that uh, and see if you agree with this, is basically what you're saying is, is in Calvinism, everything's, you know, it's still a hard determinism in regard to what God's determined is going to take place. And what happens is God determines the choice this person is going to make, and then he makes sure their highest desire is to do exactly what he determined with no other option really open to him, and then God punishes him for freely choosing what God made sure he determined him to choose, even though it's not real freedom. that makes sense? Well, yes. Of course, the Calvinists would insist, as I guess all of us would, that, that those who uh, are sinners and uh, are going to hell and reject God— um, they, uh, they're doing that on their own, and so they deserve it. And uh, I guess everybody would have to agree with that. But the point is that in the Calvinistic system, God does not make it possible for them to do anything else. That's right. Amen. And, you know, in Free Will Revisited, one of the things that you discuss on there, but you say even in the chapter, uh, I believe it's one of the last chapters as well, you specifically mentioned about how some neo-Arminians have gone, I believe, all the way over to the open theist viewpoint. Boyd and others, yeah. And one of the things that we've discussed, and maybe we can just ask you if you feel the same way, it seems as though the determinist as well as the open theist are is somewhat of two sides, two different sides of the same coin, because what is being stated is that God cannot know future events unless he determines them. It's, I mean, and when I see that, I see the open theist saying the same thing, but just answering that he does not, where the Calvinist would say he does because he does determine those events. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I would. I think you're showing a uh, an element of perception there in realizing 
that uh, both the Calvinist and the open theist are agreeing on at least something there. They are agreeing that if God knows the future, it can't be changed. It's, it has to be. It necessarily will be the way it's going to be. And so, whereas the Calvinist, on the one hand, takes that that uh, business and, and uh, redefines uh, freedom, the open theist takes that same thing and redefines God's knowledge and says God can't know the future, therefore, so that we can be free. Yeah, amen. So the... Uh, <laughs> So both of both of them say you can't reconcile determinism and freedom, <clears throat> and or, or excuse me, you can't reconcile foreknowledge and freedom. Right. So one of them denies freedom, and the other one denies foreknowledge. <laughs> right. Exactly. When I'm talking to my Calvinistic brothers about this issue, and they will label open theists as heretical and so forth because they don't they believe that. They teach that God doesn't under you know have full foreknowledge of the future. I'll let them know that I agree. They're the open theist is in serious error there, but I let them know. I go, do you realize you share the same error fundamentally? Because what you're doing is you're both denying that God could know what someone would freely choose unless He scripted it or determined it. And then I try to get them to understand that you're you're saying basically the same thing the open theist is saying that God does not have complete foreknowledge of free events. In your viewpoint, God has just because the open theist will say God did decree certain things and he knows what those things will be. You just believe he decreed everything, but you have the same view of God's lack of ability to see free choices. So I think the whole irony here for me is that our Calvinist brothers sometimes, often I should say, they believe that they have a, a special corner on the sovereignty of God and they really believe God's more powerful than Armenians understanding to be and those of us who maybe don't call ourselves Armenians but believe that we're you know, biblicist, and which is very similar to what the Armenians teach on soteriology, we think it's uh, interesting because I love to do that with my Calvinist friends. I said, you realize that you have the same view the open theist has ultimately, because basically they're always all saying the same thing, that God can only know that which he predetermines, where the biblical view of sovereignty shows, or I should say God's infinite wisdom and knowledge is that he knows even, you know, he knows what people are going to do. Uh, and I think one of the ways you put it, I think I love how you put this, is that Anything that can be explained, you know, God can understand a forehead. I was just at the doctor's office with my wife, and we were leaving, and she made an appointment, and they gave her a couple options. And the early option, which I know she's sleeping at that time, and I know my wife. She's not going to pick that option. I have enough information about my wife to know what she's going to choose, and I smiled sure. and said, she's not going to pick that. And, of course, she didn't pick that. Uh, in fact, somebody might say, well, what if the other option was taken? Well, then she'd pick a totally different day. I know. My wife, you know, and God has infinite knowledge. And I had no, you know, I just knew that based on a few facts that were pretty simple to my my mind. But God, God's mind is so amazing. And I really think that our theologies and our view of God is actually a, a theology that gives him greater glory and greater appreciation for his wisdom. Well, I, I, I think you're exactly on the right track there. Um, I would say that um, one of the problems that both Calvinists and open theists seem to have is they, as you say, they don't think God has the ability to know future free choices. Um, and I just, I just think that's presumptuous yeah, to know. think that God can't know that. Um, perhaps they think that because they see future free choices as a matter of something that's completely unexplainable. It's random that nobody could predict. 
Uh, well, um, I don't see any reason to think God can't predict random things, Amen. things, that, <laughs> things that have no explanation. Amen. For example, um, if I flip a coin, I don't know whether it's going to come down heads or tails. Nobody else can tell whether it's going to come down heads or tails because that's a random event. I'm not sure, however, that God can't tell you whether it's going to come down heads or tails. Um, somebody says, well, how can he possibly know that? I'm not obligated to explain how God can know anything. Uh, <laughs> Amen. That, that's exciting. You know, that, 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 that would be like explaining how he can be God. <clears throat> <laughs> That's true. That's right. We have we are so excited. This has been such a, a wonderful interview. And for those listening to the Good Fight Radio Show, this has been Dr. Robert Piccarilli. And we want to encourage you right now to check out these two books that we have in front of us, Grace, Faith, Free Will, and Free Will Revisited, as well as the different commentaries that Dr. Piccarelli has written, because as you can hear on here, He's got a wealth of knowledge that he, then we believe that he could share that with you and you guys would be blessed by it. So I wanted to thank you, Dr. Piccarelli, for being on the Good Fight Radio Show. Obviously, Pastor Joe Schimmel and myself want to thank you. And thank you, we brother. have been so blessed by this and, and God bless you. Well, thank you so very much for having me. It's been a blessing to be with you. Praise the Lord for you, brother. We love you. Amen. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.